Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Ben-Murgy. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. I'm tired of saying I'm not a rabbi, but I'll say it again because it's important because somebody just emailed me recently uh, and uh, uh, addressed me as rabbi. And I said, uh, no, no, I am uh, an ordained spiritual director. I do provide spiritual counseling to people one on one and do workshops, mostly about aging to saging. Um, So that's part of what I do. Um, um, plug, plug, I've got a book out now. It's called I Thought He Was Dead. And uh, it is a spiritual memoir. I've quite enjoyed the experience. I have to say, I never thought I'd be somebody who wrote a book. Uh, I come from the world of blah, blah, blah. Uh, not, not where do you put a semicolon? But it was uh, really a wonderful experience to do it. And I'm getting very sweet and wonderful feedback. So I'm really appreciative of that. Um, if you want to know anything about anything I do, simplest thing is to go to my website, ralphbenmergie.ca. And Ben Mergie is a bit tricky for people to spell, but give it a whirl on Google. I'm sure you'll find it eventually. ralphbenmergie.ca. Um, and if you want to support this podcast, uh, patreon.com slash NTKR. All right. So that's all the shtick about that. Um, oh, my goodness. Where do I begin? Oof. What a journey. Uh, the person I have on today is someone I've known for a very long time. A person who, by the way, when I lived in Winnipeg, came through town <laughs> and derisively laughed as, as they said, you live here? Um, well, they live there now for I don't know how many years, maybe 30. Uh, so the joke's on them, not me. That's the way. <laughs> <laughs> this works. Um, my guest today is uh, comedian Lara Ray. And, uh, you know, you and I have not spoken in so long. And it's such a pleasure to see you. How are you? Oh, it's so wonderful to see you as well. Yeah, I believe it's been quite, it's been a considerable amount of time. I've certainly been, uh, you know, I was aware of you and what you were doing and so on, you know, but even then I kind of lost touch with that a little bit. Um, but it was, uh, we had a group, a uh, little kind of group chat thing the other night that uh, yeah. your friend set up. And that was the first time I'd seen you uh, in a while. And then, you know, uh, because often Facebook is a way to, you know, reconnect with people you haven't seen in a long time. But we hadn't, we hadn't really done that much um, either. And so this is a wonderful uh, chance to to catch up. Well, and, where and are I we mean, you know, I didn't know you were a rabbi, for instance. <laughs> Keep it up. (laughs) (laughs) Zoom well, pal, Alice. (laughs) All right. So where do you want to begin our story together? Um, Well, I mean, you know, that's it's not a bad place to begin. Is it sitting in your living room in Winnipeg? Yeah. You know, because that's certainly... uh, that certainly connected our two stories because, I mean, you were one of the reasons I think that I jumped into Winnipeg. You know, the decision to move to Winnipeg was primarily my exes. I was based on, um, at the time, just being fed up with Toronto. Mm-hmm. And so, and it being quite expensive, you know, and me also, you know, really struggling at that time with alcohol. And yeah. so, you know, I'm going into rehab and, you know, alcohol, depression, the whole, the whole, you know, I was just in a bad place. And so Winnipeg was kind of a start over. 
And so, I mean, the way it was put forward was that, you know, on the other side of coming out of rehab, then I could join the family in, in Winnipeg if I chose, hmm. if I chose, and if I chose to, to, to make that work. It was a conditional offer, let me put it that way. And uh, one of the things, though, that was important to me, uh, especially early on in recovery, is, uh, you know, could I, make, could I make a go of it? You know, I did think that to be occupied and valid and um, worthwhile, you know, would be all things that I would need to feel that I was able to do in Winnipeg. And one of the ways that I was able to get that foot in the door was because you were there. Mm. And uh, you had been at CBC yeah. and yourself and, and a few other people uh, through those connections, I was able to uh, get my foot in the door uh, at CBC and, uh, and, and went from there uh, to, to what has been, I think, a wonderful choice. Yeah. The Winnipeg Comedy Festival and yeah. all kinds of uh, writing. and uh, oh, Yeah, yeah. You know, and I mean, there is... Um, uh, you know, I, I used to joke about this early on that I don't think that I would have uh, uh, co-founded the Toronto Comedy Festival, nor even been in a position where I would have had the credibility to do that. Right. You know what I mean, Ralph, there's a, a certain amount of not that I was a that I was a big fish, but I was a you know I was a medium fish in a in a small pond. You know, he, he whenever. You, you weren't a carp, but you were a large, a a large yeah. koi. <laughs> so I had established a few credits, you yeah. know, radio credits, because I'd been doing some stuff at uh, CFRB with uh, right. with our friend John Oakley there. And right. he had gone in there. So I had I had gone the radio route, you know, as as you had. I was mm. seemed to be chasing you in that way. You, know? <laughs> you did comedy, then you were into radio. I did comedy, <laughs> then I went into radio and, and, and so on. I haven't... Uh, um, but uh, yeah, so yeah, it, it's worked out really, really good for me. So I, I don't want to dwell on things, but the uh, the drinking. Yeah, <clears throat> I remember you were you know part of a duo, comedy duo, singing comedy duo, and yeah, and um, I remember how much you, you were at my my place in Winnipeg, and you drank a lot, and I thought, wow, that's a yeah. lot of drinking. What were you d- trying to drown in there? Yeah, I mean, that's a good uh, drown, drown, uh, just oblivion, you know, but drown, drown the person that I was uh, pretending to be, I suppose. You know, I do think there was a certain amount of desultory kind of suicide to it, definitely in a way, you know, but, you know, if you're, if you're asking in a way, do does my being trans and me struggling with alcohol, are they are they correlated? I would say, yeah. Number one would be that. Number two is probably being born in Glasgow. You know, when you, <laughs> when you together, it's almost inevitable, right? You know? uh, but certainly, I would not be the first person who ended up identifying on the, you know, the LGBTQ plus spectrum who who struggled with. Um, uh, drugs and alcohol as a way to go. But was it, was it a, were you conscious of those things at the time or was it just a reaction to just knowing this isn't right? I knew at four years old. Wow. Yeah. Do you know, I was, uh, I was on Saki Hall Street in Glasgow 
in about 1969 with a friend of my mother. And uh, she said, you know, as, 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 as older people did in those days, you know, it was quite gendered and old fashioned, right? So it would all be, uh, who are you going to marry, you know, and this or that, and, you know, who's your boyfriend then, you know? And so I guess a friend of my mom's, you know, just to be, just to be fun. And, you know, what would have been a very young woman at the time says, you know, who are you going to marry then? And I said, uh, I'm going to marry my, my best friend, David O'Grady. I remember I said that, you know, <laughs> I had a big crush on this, this little boy. And um, she said, uh, you know, boys can't marry boys, you know, and I, it's quite funny at the time. And, and then, you know what I said? She says, she says, boys can't marry boys. And you know what I said? I was I would have been seven years old, Ralph. I said in San Francisco they can. <laughs> at, seven, at seven. Now, what's interesting about it historically is that would have been about 1968, 1969. And so that was that was a few years, at least half a decade before San Francisco became a gay mecca. mecca. Yeah. And even then, you know, same-sex partnerships being legal. Uh, where, uh, you know, would come much later. And so I, I was being a bit utopian or romantic, but it came from somewhere. And I do, I think I have a pretty good memory of where it came from is that was kind of like the summer of love, you know, right. 68, right? Hate Ashbury. Hate Ashbury. Right. I saw on the news, I saw Hate Ashbury. And I remember very distinctly as much as we can remember things, you know, distinctly from our long ago memory but i'm pretty sure i saw two men one of them dressed in a cowboy outfit kissing on the street and that would have been hate ashbury and so the, the homosexuality would have been part of that you know overall uh latitudinarian kind of attitude towards you know life and morals that was coming up out, out of that time it wasn't specifically gay right but you know you see what you want to see right and so I you, saw yeah, you knew, you knew, it. yeah, you knew from a very early age, but then I guess you just, I mean, you ended up getting uh, married as a man to a woman, yeah, starting a family, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but drinking. So yeah. the, 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 the inner t- conflict must have been, uh, well, what was it like? Well, you know, it's, uh, there's just a lot of deceit, right? There's a lot of lying. There's a lot of unhappiness, you know, and and it's interesting, you know, because one of the things I think I was blessed with was I was quite precocious as a child. And um, let me just I might even have this. Yeah. So interesting. I just happen to have this in front of me here. Uh, but this is Christine Jorgensen's um, yeah. autobiography, you know, and Christine Jorgensen is quite famous for being the first kind of famous, I would say, well, what used to be known as sex change, you know, right. of our generation, uh, at, le- at least, you know, from, from dropping bombs to blonde bombshell. <laughs> uh, Jorgensen had actually sought out and achieved after a great fight. This was never easy and never has been for our community. But after a great fight, she was allowed to go to Europe and uh, undergo sexual reassignment surgery and that in Denmark and that famous uh, picture interestingly enough of her you know getting off the airplane and all that kind of stuff that came about as a result of the Life magazine story in 1950 
um, was a latter day discovery of something that she had actually been living with and living into for about a year and a half. But of course, it was quite transformative for her, the fame. And then it was quite transformative for society. And I mean, it was an interesting period because on the one hand, it was seen as part of that kind of nuclear and modern deluxe kind of age where we could we can actualize anything through science and technology. And then at the same time, of course, it, it ran headlong into the continuation of 1950s kind of morality. Right, right. And so there was a little bit of both. You so know, you're, but, you were trying to stay in your lane, as it were. You were trying, I was trying to stay in my lane because I, I found out about Christine Jorgensen and throughout the whole period, you know, that I was closeted, I was fascinated and curious. But there were two things I knew. One was that this was what I was, that there was nothing I could do about it, that it wasn't malevolent or evil or immoral. I had no moral compunction about it. But the other thing I did know was you couldn't tell us all. And that other people, for some reason, thought it was the worst thing ever. And to be a boy, so to speak, who knew she was a girl, or we wouldn't have said it that way in our generation, who thought she was a girl, right. um, was, um, was, was not okay. It was actually, to me, and I think I was right about this, to assert that would be worse and more of a problem for everyone around you, especially yourself, than coming out and saying you were homosexual. Oh, yeah. No, in our, in our generation, it was... Uh... I mean, we were in showbiz, so yeah. there there was a certain latitude. I mean, there was yeah. a, an ability to be gay in that world, but just gay. But just gay. But just gay. But, but at and least then, that. Just gay, and then something that actually plays to some degree to this day, Ralph, leaving the next day. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes when I go to a small town, if I put on a show and I'm leaving the next day, They'll put up what with whatever this is. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But it's very entertaining as long as you don't plan to stick around. Yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, yes. And so if I may use, you know, that kind of Judah, Judah Butler kind of term, you know, there's there, there was a certain performativity mm-hmm. that I could explore that I think probably saved me from suicide. I think being in show business saved me from suicide. I think if I had been streamed into a more conventional or blue collar world yeah. or, or we had stayed in Glasgow, I don't think I would have made it. I think the fact I was in show business and around the time you and I met began to be introduced for better or worse uh, to, to queer people, to queer society was right. both a terror and a threat. And I think what prevented me until several decades later in coming out with my attraction towards men was AIDS. Right. 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 If it wasn't for AIDS, I think I probably would have come out in the eighties. Right. At least as attracted to men. And then we would have seen what would have gone from there. So, right? yeah. So there's gotta be a part of this of trying to kill I something. Trying to bother man. But I knew I wasn't gay. 
You Say know that again? I knew very early on that I was attracted to boys. Right. My class. And I knew that was one thing. So that was one bad thing. And then I knew that I must be a girl. And that was another bad thing. But when I put them together, as in I'm a girl and I like boys, that didn't feel like a bad thing. That just felt like an impossible thing. Right. Right. You see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the way that I, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but or a sexual way, but the way that I do being attracted to boys mm -hmm. is different than how gay men would do it. Right. You know what I mean? It yeah. has the female kind of attraction. If you But know. there must have been a, a, a part of you that was trying to kill a part of you. Yeah, yeah. And then I've, got, I've got to kill this if I'm going to function. And if I don't, my life is going to be extremely hard. Yeah, like uh, kill it, tamp, tamp it down, right? Um, divert, distract. Um, the other one is to, um, how would you describe it? Um, what's the right word? Uh, incorporate. You know, that the first, I would say, life-affirming thing was when somebody approached me to write about gender in 2010. And I decided I was going to write a thing called One Man's Show, but I was going to write it for a female friend of mine, and I was going to have her play me. Hmm. And I knew I was doing something with that. Yeah. Yeah. Something's I mean, obviously, literally, I knew I was doing something with that. But at the same time, I knew that I was doing something. Right. I was, I was affirming in reality something for the first time in my life. Right? In a positive way. I had whispered it to people. People that were close to me. Uh, people that I were intimate with were familiar with my issues, if, if I may. But it was usually framed as a problem. Yes, exactly. Right? Issues, right? Rather than a journey. Yeah. Because there was no, there didn't appear to be enough momentum within me that somebody would really feel a desire to push or encourage me into, into doing something. Right. Oh, so it just kind of sits there. I mean, I told, I told someone I was intimate with and, and very close to, when I came out as trans, you know, in 2015, yeah. I called her and I told her, and like most people, she was very supportive and kind and all this kind of stuff. But she said to me, it's amazing, you know, because we were, you know, we were together for a, for a long time. We were a couple and so on. And yet I didn't know. And I said, you didn't know, but for that time when we were sitting on the stoop and I talked to you about it for two hours. And then she said, ah, oh, <laughs> I forgot all about that. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And that's, that's a response a couple of people have given me. Because when things aren't alive in the world, no matter what they are, right? If they're just kind of secrets, they just kind of stay there. Because yeah. they have no impact, right? And so that I felt this had no impact on our relationship at the time, except 
you know, that it had an impact, but like not a not a tangible one. And then once you don't do anything about it for years, nobody continues to think about right. it. Right. Like, oh, I wonder if Lara is still hasn't transitioned. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. It's not an active thought in people's no, mind. No, no, no. Because you're not. You ha- you haven't. But you're not. Yeah. So they're you're, just like, okay, maybe yeah. he yeah, at the yeah. time was just going through yeah, a thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So what what in, in your family itself, the one that you created, yeah. what what has been the journey for you and your ex and your kids? Like what has been the journey? Well, I mean, it was interesting because in some ways, um, you know, because I had, uh, we had been divorced at least three years, right? And then because I came out after we got divorced and entered into a relationship with a guy, my sexual orientation was a matter of public record, right? right? And so we'd already kind of dealt with that, right? And then any residual uh, kind of pain uh, around, you know, the the dissolution of this long-term uh, relationship was also hopefully in the process of, of healing and, and, and so on. And so, and then I think with my daughter, uh, she and I were very close and we stayed close and she seemed to be very accepting of it. But behind the scenes, she was struggling more than I knew. Hmm. It wasn't until a friend of ours, much to my dislike and, and, and distaste at the time, until a friend of ours confronted me with this and kind of called me on it. I basically chose to ignore it right. in, the kind of, in the kind of pink cloud of my self-actualization and right right it's just like this don't bring me down i decided that you know this was good for me and so it needed to be good for everybody right no way did my daughter not accept that it wasn't good for me or any of those things you know we raised we raised her right right but it's always different when it's yeah 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 and um so i would say maybe two and a half years into my transition we kind of had to go at that again. And now we have, I think, a much closer relationship and one that, that is very similar to the one that we had before. I mean, what you've, what you've done is such a road less traveled. And, and, and I've, I've watched, you know, I've seen things that you've posted, right? Where you, you're talking about um, even legitimacy like you know, uh, official papers a passport you know all the things oh you've goodness. been through oh right? yeah uh, you you have no idea how much of a struggle it is yeah you know it's 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 heartbreaking some of it you know and and i came at it from a place of privilege and a place of people embracing and accepting it um which is the minority experience yeah. uh, by to the nth degree yeah. People really struggle and suffer in their personal lives far more than I have, which is not to say I hadn't had my share of. Yeah, I've, I've seen some things, some tears, you know. Yeah, and some tears, but at the same time, you know, I'm, I feel very, very blessed that I'm accepted, you know. And at the same time, you have to do that balance, you know, 
um, you know, as Chris Rock says in kind of other contexts, like, I'm not going to give people a cookie, you know, for like treating me like a cookie, <laughs> right? Which is, which is sometimes where it is in, in cis land. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, you know, nobody's killing you, you know, and as you know, it's not a great benchmark, you know, but it's a benchmark in many places, you know, luckily it's not a benchmark in my life. And, you know, I mean, I'm very, very surprised. I've said this numerous times, but Winnipeg is a very accepting city in that way. Yeah. 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 Uh, I live in Hamilton now. But if I don't give a fuck as you know, keep <laughs> When I lived in Hamilton, I live in Hamilton now, and every uh, fifth time I'm saying the word Hamilton, I start to say Winnipeg, and I go, Win I mean uh, Hamilton, because well, they, have their, they have their similarities. Yeah, they're they're both these these wonderful sort of uh, livable amount of people cities, right? Mm -hmm. Where you there's a, an ability to connect and disconnect that that, mm -hmm. that, that works. The stand-up community. Now, we started in the stand-up community, and it was a very macho culture. Yeah. Right? I mean, there was a few women. Uh, I think almost all of Well, yeah, most of them were gay. Um, and the, the men were straight, mm -hmm. and, uh, except for a very few. Very uh, few. Yeah, Michael, you know, Boncourt would would would, would have... But he was in a theater troupe, so, you know, a troupe grotesque, so it wasn't the same thing. But it, the, the culture itself was very straight. Very um, straight. So the, and, and you stayed working in that culture all the way through this. Yeah, right? yeah. And I mean, not, and, and I mean, to see the transition in, in our environment, you know, has been incredible. You know, it, as, as a scout, you know, to go into, and I know it's not the same club, but to go into the yuck yucks, mm -hmm. like the main yuck yucks, which is yeah. now, but was on Bay Street, you know, when we were young, 1280 Bay, um, we would, um, to go in there, um, as, I, as I did when I was at the comedy festival, and then two young trans women, you know, will walk through the bar and go and sit at a table in the front, right? And then the server will come over and serve them. And nobody will turn their head. And maybe right. sometime into the show, maybe one of them will say something and the comic might turn and they may get a little bump because they were talking. And so there's a little bit of heckling, you know, or maybe they're just being part of the show or maybe they're just sitting there and enjoying it. But one thing that's not happening is their transness being an issue for anybody in the room. And... You know, I, I can't overstate how miraculous that is. But what if somebody had shown up to, to go on who was trans? I don't remember anybody. You know, and, and 35, 40 years ago, or 30 years ago, you would talk to people about transvestites, yeah, which yeah. was a whole subculture oh, yeah, over yeah. there, but never yeah. trans transitional, just transvestite, yeah. right? Transvestite. But nobody in our in our circle was was walking up on a stage like that, right? No. Is, is no. that changed? I mean, besides you, has that changed? Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of trans, <clears throat> right? There's there's uh, Al Val, there's uh, there's uh, um, Trana Wintour, Trana Wintour. It's a <laughs> like that name. Yeah, there's uh, there's uh, Cindy, 
uh, from Edmonton. Uh, there's, I mean, there's, there's shows. Right, right. They put a show together of all trans, non-binary uh, comics, you know, and the yeah. maybe not everybody is on hormones and has had surgery. Right. As, as one kind of transness, you know, in the great trans spectrum. Um, spectrum there is now, but you're certainly going to have a whole bunch of different pe- types of people. You're going to have non-binary people, trans men, trans women, you know, you're going to have a, a gamut. Oh yeah. And in the younger generation now, it, it is completely different. The gender fluidity is, is a, the norm actually That's for incredible. so many, so many kids. Um, how is it changed? How has all of this changed or has it changed your comedy? Um, you know, it's interesting. Some people have said that, you know, I mean, you are, um, I guess, you know, in, in, in general, you know, for obvious reasons, you become a less angry person, you know, in some ways, maybe a bit less cynical. Um, you certainly become overnight marginalized in some way. Mm-hmm. And so you, you're, you're dealing with intolerance and, and, and prejudice in a way that you never have. So in some ways that can make you more empathetic, you know? Um, so, I mean, certainly there's, uh, you know, because I used to have the moniker, the dark prince you know, of comedy, you know, because <laughs> I would go to the edgy, you know? And, you know, it's still, I, I still like dark jokes and I still like edgy jokes, but, you know, I've certainly moved away from, and I think a lot of comics have, from the idea of jokes that go after, you know, specific groups of, of people. And, uh, you know, I understand the basic principle of punching up versus punching down. Yeah. And you know, I've backed off for a bunch of reasons. One, mostly that's unproductive, you know, in terms of getting into these kind of Facebook arguments about what, what's, what's appropriate and inappropriate uh, for comics to talk about it and so on. Um, but um, certainly, um, you know, a lot of what's going on with trans and, and trans jokes and stuff, you know, is, is makes makes me a little bit like sort of like tired of stand up right now, you know, for a bunch of good reasons. But yeah. at, the, at the same time, I do. I love doing it, you know, and. Um, I know it's interesting, though, because I, thought, yeah. I said to my, uh, <clears throat> my to my wife a little while ago, I sure as hell wouldn't want to start being a comic right now because there's so many things that you're not allowed to say anymore that you don't know what you can say and not say. You don't know uh, identity politics and, and, and uh, you know, all of that has become really a, a, a major part of what is a comic's role. And yet when, when we were doing it at the beginning, it was the idea was, the court jester, I mean, really the court just tweaked the nose of power, you know, and a lot of your material was wonderful that way. Just that ability oh, totally, to yeah. poke and a I hole mean, I in things. Right? Yeah, I grew up with that, you know, and this has been a struggle for me because, um, yeah. And then about, you know, um, well, Sarah Shulman wrote, wrote a book called Conflict is Not Abuse. I don't know if hmm. you know this book. No, I don't. Fantastic book. And, you know, the title kind of explains what it's about, that oftentimes people will get in conflict and then 
because the other person is in conflict with you, you describe the action of the other person towards you as being abusive. Right. And really, in some cases, it mostly can be identified as a conflict. And then usually it's an ideological conflict. In other words, it's about, um, it's about things rather than I, idea. You know, it's about ideas rather than things and things we can't change or whatever. Right. right? And um, so, I mean, that's, that's part of what's going on um, right now is, uh, is, is there's a lot of that going on. But she basically talks about something called overstating harm, right? And so when somebody makes you feel a certain way or says a certain thing about you, so somebody says something transphobic to me, right? How I respond to that, obviously, it's hurtful, it's terrible, and it doesn't make you feel very good, right? Mm. But if when I decide to say, it ruined my day, which, I, which I've certainly said, it ruined my day. You know, two things are going on if we want to pivot a little bit into the spiritual part of this. Two things are going on, right? One is I'm making a declaration, which is probably now going to be self-fulfilling. You've ruined my day. <laughs> I've decided, right? No? Okay. I'm giving this one away. You have I'm ruined this my day. One away, you yeah. know? And so then, you know, then you basically have to decide how you're going to handle these things, you know, and a lot of the last year of my life, I would say, has been in that spiritual realm, which is how am I going to decide to deal with things that don't seem to be going away? You know, because one of the things that bothers me terribly is uh, being misgendered, right? And I would say there's probably one thing that I could do fundamentally, which would make being misgendered disappear by about 99, 98, 99%, which is if I could change and fix my voice to a certain pitch and, and leave it there. In other words, if I sounded un, or was read unambiguously as a woman. Right. And there are actually within speech pathology, there are determinants, you know, some of them have to do with DB and pitch levels. And then some of them have to do with reflection and intonation. And then there are certain characteristics at certain points that were attributed. But basically, at the end of the day, the test has been the same for the last 40 or so years is you're going to listen to someone on the telephone and you're going to be asked what gender that person is. And if 10 out of 10 say the person talking is female, you have passed the test. Hmm. Right? And I wouldn't pass that test right right now. Right. Right. And there are things I could do um, that I've chosen not to, right? And so in a way, um, that part's on me, right? And these are kind of hard pills to swallow. But at some point, there are just, you, you, you run into walls, right? And, and you've created a clear path for yourself you know, for the rest of your life in front of you in terms of some of these things that you're self-actualizing. But at the same time, other things are going to come into that path that you have no control over, right? And those are going to be there, right? And in a way, it's like quitting drinking. It's like sober me can handle things a lot better than drunk me. And female me can handle things way better 
than pretending to be Naomi, right? And that's my benchmark when I get up in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. And then from there, I'm I'm building on that so, foundation. So there has been a day that I have regretted this decision. I'll put it that way. Right. So becoming true to yourself allows you a certain equanimity, a certain peace that you weren't going to get until you did it, right? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and I had to be right. And I'll use I'll use I'll use language that's that's a, a bit more sort of precise than uh, than I would normally use, which is I had it had to be right with God, or I wasn't going to do it. Hmm. In other words, um, I had to feel that this was one hundred percent a spiritually beneficial uh, decision. Was this going to improve my my spiritual uh, way of being, or was it going to diminish it? You know, was it was it a healthy choice in that? Right, and and in the spiritual pursuit, authenticity is everything. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, and that included, although I had very little concern about it from a from a theological or or dogmatic point of view, whether or not that certain sacred texts that come from a Christian kind of background, uh, were, they, were they on side with this or were they against it? And if I was going to continue to be in or talk about or participate in that kind of general Christian realm, you know, mostly I, I go to Quaker meetings, um, do, did I feel okay with that? Could, could, could I defend that? Mm-hmm. And and I very quickly and easily uh, could, you know. And like I said, I'm not that interested in it. But at the same time, you know, I know what's thrown back at us, right? And one of the main things that's thrown back, obviously, is um, is from Leviticus, right? Right. But I'm not a man dressing up like a woman. I'm a woman, right? Right. And so. So do you never do you never ask the the, the, the question of God of what, why did you make me go through all this like what why didn't I just start this way why did I have to claw my way through my life to get to the point of being myself like this because I don't look at the, I look at myself as a, as 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 one of the children of God I don't look at myself as the child of God I don't think that God is that particularly interested in that part of it. There are 1% of people, and it seems to be consistent throughout millennia, 1%, 2% are a little bit different when it comes to how they pair up or they behave according to kind of norms around raising families and uh, being in in coupling and being in units and mating and so on, right? right? There seems to be some diversity there throughout nature, which is um, part of the general evolutionary uh, trend. Right. And I am a little bit interested in the science of it. And one of the things that seems to be interesting about it from a science standpoint is this idea of, of neuroatypicality. 
that this seems to be a variation that begins in the brain, right? In other words, my chromosomes, my hormone levels, my thyroid, my endocrine system, the organs themselves, everything normal and intact, right? The one place, and this would only be determined post-mortem, is that if you slice into the brain, there may be a tiny area of the brain that seems to be involved in the self-consciousness of gender, hmm. right? That is, that is slightly different in me. And the way that is slightly different and that part of the brain that is different also seems to be the part of the brain that is sometimes different when people are described as being neuroatypical right. or on the spectrum. Right. Neurodiversity. Neurodiversity. I couldn't count on 15 hands, Ralph, how many trans friends of mine I know who are unambiguously autistic. Wow. Or the number of people, and I know that there will be many uh, who know me amongst your listeners and certainly within my own family and stuff. It doesn't get a lot of airplay. But there are people close to me who I trust who put me into that category as well right right uh, you know and i mean nobody's gonna and my parents especially are, are gonna uh argue around the idea that i was a weird kid right so right. whatever weird means and whatever weirdness means, this weirdness seems to be part of a great pattern of things as to how we all are yes. and what we're learning what we're learning very quickly and I see this in my incredible university classes I teach, where most of the students are non-binary, you know, mm -hmm. and most of the students, I couldn't tell you what gender they were when they were born if I, if you paid me, like I literally don't know, and I had to stop caring, right, because it's an old person thing to do. It's like, I don't care, but I need to know. Well, why do you need to know? I don't know. That kind of thing, right? Uh, but that's just the way they are. And it appears to me to be a really, as much of a, a cultural revolution as the 1960s. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, you know, it's, it's a moving towards a loosening of, of the of the chains of, of, uh, of conformity around uh, sex roles, if you wish. Yeah, right? absolutely. To be, this seems to be the Rubicon we're crossing right now. Yeah, yeah. I don't so think it's ever gonna go back. So, I mean, you wanna have your art and your expression. Is there a part of you that just thinks, I, I really don't need to be the poster girl for, for everybody for this. I don't need to, you know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. You know, you know, I mean, and it's interesting because the other thing that it, it brings up is that doing this is an act of creation, right? I mean, literally, obviously, but it also is spiritually, but it also is artistically. And I wasn't a big fan of the movie, The Danish Girl, for a bunch of reasons. But one of the things I found fascinating about the film and the novel and the real story of Lily Abba, the, the woman it was based on, was that she was, a, she was an artist, right? A visual artist uh, and, 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 uh, and a, a well-regarded one, as was, as was her partner. 
and that on the other side of transitioning for that brief year that she lived after her second uh, surgery, um, she worked in a uh, in the glove department, I believe, of like a department store, right? right? With all the other ladies, right, 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 right. And she comes in in the morning, and she's so happy, right? And I saw the film very into transition, early into transition. And I knew that feeling. Hmm. And still to this day, and I think because primarily, and we're still in the midst of COVID, so this may change, but right now, and since I left the comedy festival, I've been working in social services, Hmm. you know? And right now I'm working in a place where I, I help run the dinner program and we feed people who with food insecurity every day. And so a lot of my job is cooking, you know, ordering things, managing a floor, you know, it's like a real job and it's, and it's it's a hard job and, you know, no offense because it's a wonderful company, but they don't pay me very well by show business standards. And these are all things that I, uh, you know, it takes me a while to get used to is going in every day and shit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Hey, listen, when I when I moved to Winnipeg, it was the first straight job I'd ever yeah, had. Yeah, and yeah, I, phoned, exactly. I phoned my wife, yeah. my first wife, yeah. I, phoned, I phoned her at the time and I said, yeah. they, do I stay here till five? Like, know, how crazy. does this work? He said, no, no, yeah. you got to stay till five. Like, I know, it's crazy. I finish my work. He's like, no, no, know, stay till five. I know. <laughs> crazy. I know. And I mean, I was lucky, very lucky. And again, back, you know, thanks to you, you know, that I did get in at the CBC in the 90s. And a lot of the 90s before the comedy festival, I was kind of in there every day or three, four days a week, you know, doing very fun and very creative work, but very much like a job. And I would see very quickly, and I still see to this day, you know, young people from the stand-up world who either come in to volunteer helping me in social services, or they're involved in one of the other projects I'm involved in that's more of a production. And you can tell very quickly who hasn't worked two or three days starting at nine o'clock, putting in consistent four or five hours for decades yeah. or ever. Forever, they, yeah. Because they're looking a little uh, rough after a couple of days. <laughs> That's you know? right. You want me to come back tomorrow? What are you, nuts? Yeah. <laughs> but I would have to say that I think part of my, as you call it before, my equilibrium and my, my sense of well-being and stuff is the general sense of contentment that I start the day with that I never started my day with before. Ooh, how lovely. Right? And, yeah. uh, and, that, and that for the first time in my life, because, you know, and we talk about that identity, you know, and I'm with you in some ways that, you know, the, you know, identity politics rose with the collapse of the international left, right? Which was really based along class lines. And then once that collapsed, um, Paul, my good friend, Paul Grasner, um, who passed away uh, last year, you know, who was one of the yippies and someone I was very blessed to, to know in the last years of his life. Uh, Krasner said, we've gone from we shall overcome to we shall overlap. That was his uh, <laughs> politics, right? And in a way, it's true, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We shall overlap, right? I love that. But the one thing about identity that I think is is very important to me is I identified so much for 19 years, a lot of my self-esteem came from being, hey, 
she runs, she's, the, she's that woman that runs the comedy festival, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I'd be nice to her. Don't charge her. She runs the comedy festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever little ego thing, right? You know, I'm not just someone with a job. I'm someone who runs the whatever. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Better or worse. You know, that was an important part of who I was. And then before that, I was, you know, that's 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 Al from Alan George. You know, that's, you know, whatever, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 so yeah. much external validation. Right? So much external validation. Absolutely. And for the first time, you know, it's like if all that went away, you know, and when I left the comedy festival and I didn't do stand up for a while, it had all gone away. I mean, I hadn't lost it in the sense that no one was preventing me from, you know, continuing. Yeah, yeah, that. you just decided. You, and, you, and you take a break, right? Whatever. You hey, I, I walked away, you know, for quite a yeah. while. That's why the book's called I Thought He Was Dead. Because when people yeah, did yeah. see me again to be, oh, I thought like I was dead. Yeah. <laughs> you take a break. You take a break, right? And then you you reflect and you do all these kind of things. So now I always say, you know, I'm back at it. I'm back in it. But it's nice. And you must know this feeling too. You know, it's nice. I have a job. When I get a call and they say, you know, you, you want to fly to such and such and do a debaters. I'm like, do I want to take a couple of days off work? You know, fly, stay in a nice hotel, walk out on stage, have people recognize me and applaud, have people laugh. You know, yeah. do I want that? And then, you know, get a check afterwards that's, you know. Yeah, well, I don't want that. I'm yeah, fine. <laughs> I, I think too, you know, and so, but it becomes a nice, a nice. Yeah, point, yeah. Well, know? whatever you don't have to do and have to do and have to do. It becomes, you know, the, the the cage we built one bar at a time, right? Until we're in exactly. it and we can't get out, right? But you've taken you're such good right. control of your of your own destiny. I mean, you, you, you know, when I listened to to you, there were, you you walked an edge for a long time with a lot of uh, internal struggle, and then you made the decisions you, you, you knew you had to make. And, and I'm sure for other people, they, they can't even make the decision. It just breaks them, but you, you did it. You, you did it and, oh. you, and you are it. And it, it's, but I mean, it was, it was crazy. was through the support, you know, and, um, and, and concern of so many, you know, including my ex, you know, mm. and I mean, part of being that kind of husk, inside and not caring is you know that it it's often existential that we have something that we can move towards yeah. and i had a child right that's so important right that i had a child and then uh you know and then we did something and it was such it was such a conscious decision you know one of the most conscious decisions that I made in my life was in, in conjunction with Lucille, which was we were going to raise the child once, once because we split up because I was drinking so much. Then we decided we were going to reconcile and we were going to get together. And then once we got together, the decision was that we were going to raise this child together to adulthood because it felt like staying together was the best thing for the kid. Right. right? Because as Jeff Rothpan said, Kids love screaming and fighting, 
<laughs> we stayed together for the kids because kids love screaming and fighting. <laughs> and so in hindsight, you know, as my daughter says, you know, both insightfully and heartbreakingly, you guys should have broken up when I was seven, eight, whatever. Mm. Um, that was her subjective sense of, of the kind of the stress of, of growing up in the household of two yeah, and a half. Yeah. You know, and I feel I feel terrible about that, obviously. It um, never feels made, good. I would have made it, you know, if we if we'd split up. So selfishly, I'm glad we didn't split up. My my ex-wife kept me alive for for so many years. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. I owe her my life in so many different different ways, you know. Isn't that lovely? And to this day, she remains uh, you know, a tremendous uh, uh, pillar of support for both myself and and for my daughter. You know, an incredible person. I was very lucky. All right, Love listen. I'm gonna I'm gonna go. I love talking to you. It's been so long. You and I have not sat down and had a conversation together in ages. Laura Ray, um, thank you. When do we get to talk about you? Oh, you you have to start a podcast. Is this a part one? I hope this is a part one. Yes, we shall. We shall come come back together again. And uh, uh, I just really appreciate who you are. I, you. I, I always have through every iteration of who you've been. I've I want to talk about some, there's so many good things we can talk about. So I hope you have me back. Oh, I will. Absolutely. And you know, the first time, the first time I uh, saw the word rabbi was in the New Testament. Are you and, frozen? No. Oh, yeah, I thought you were frozen. <laughs> I'm just sitting there going, yeah, so you saw it in the New Testament. I saw it in the New Testament. I think it's in the Revised Standard Edition, where at some point it says somebody addresses uh, uh, Jesus, Jesus. Uh, in Hebrew right. uh, by rabbi. Right? right. It actually says in parenthesis, which means teacher. <laughs> and it was the first indication uh, and I was quite young when I observed it, of moving Jesus away from being a Jew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right well, now, I mean, to be fair, Rabbi does mean teacher, but but it does. To, but yeah. it's but it was it was put in there to yeah. clarify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they were calling calling uh, uh, Jesus Rabbi because it's their word for teacher. Yeah, not yeah. because like yeah, one yeah, of yeah. ministers. So uh, I mean, uh, I didn't want you to picture a rabbi. Absolutely, I'll tell you one last one, one last story. So um, yeah. I, when they first built the Eaton Center, I, I was walking through it with my best friend Mike, and we were walking through the Eaton Center, and there's this little old couple walking in front of us, and they're looking up, and the guy's looking at the uh, the Canada geese thing that Michael Snow had done, and he, he's looking at, it, and he turns to his wife, and he just goes. Well, it's not Glasgow then, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of shake their heads like, where the hell are we? That's and out they go. <laughs> got a perfect. Remember how upset he got Michael Snow when they put the fucking ribbons on the necks of the Yeah, kids? yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, my friend. George, my darling. I'll see you soon. You take care of yourself. Laura Ray is my guest on Not That Kind of Rabbi. Nice to see you again. Anytime. Anytime. And if, folks, if you want, uh, go to ralphbenmergie.ca and you'll find anything you need to find. Spiritual counseling, my book, workshops, and all kinds of stuff. Uh, and uh, if you want to 
Subscribe, please do. Apparently that seems to matter. And patreon.com slash NTKR uh, is where you want to go. So take care, my friend. Love you. I'm going to read your book. And when I come back, yes. I'm going to talk about your book. We'll talk about there. You'll finally get to me. <laughs> See you later. Thank you. Bye. Bye.